Chapter 24 of Annals of a Quiet Neighborhood. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Gertrude Durrett. Annals of a Quiet Neighborhood by George MacDonald. Chapter 24 An Angel unawares. Feeling rather more than the usual reaction so well known to clergymen, after the concentrated duties of the Sunday, I resolved on Monday to have the long country walk I had been disappointed of on the Saturday previous. It was such a day as seems impossible to describe, except in negatives. It was not stormy. It was not rainy. It was not sunshiny, it was not snowy, it was not frosty, it was not foggy, it was not clear. It was nothing but cloudy, and quiet, and cold, and generally ungenial, with just a puff of wind now and then to give an assertion to its ungeniality. I should not in the least have cared to tell what sort of the day was had it not been an exact representation of my own mind. It was not the day that made me such as itself. The weather could always easily influence the surface of my mind, my external mood, but it could never go much further. The smallest pleasure would break through the conditions that merely came as such a day. But this morning, my whole mind and heart seemed like the day. The summer was thousands of miles off on the other side of the globe. Ethelwyn, up at the old house there across the river, seemed millions of miles away. The summer might come back. She never would come nearer. It was absurd to expect it. For, in such mood, stupidity constantly arrogates to itself the qualities and claims of insight. In fact, it passes itself off for common sense, making the most dreary ever appear the most reasonable. In such moods, a man might almost be persuaded that it was ridiculous to expect any such poetic absurdity as the summer, with the diamond mornings and the opal evenings, ever to come again. Nay, to think that it ever had had any existence except in the fancies of the human heart, one of its castles in the air. The whole of life seemed faint and foggy, with no red in it anywhere, and when I glanced at my present relations in marshmallows, I could not help finding several circumstances to give some appearance of justice to this appearance of things. I seemed to myself to have done no good. I had driven Catherine Weir to the verge of suicide, while at the same time I could not restrain her from the contemplation of some dire revenge. I had lost the man upon whom I had most reckoned as a seal of my ministry, namely Thomas Weir. True, there was old Rogers, but old Rogers was just as good before I found him. I could not dream of having made him any better, and so I went on brooding over all the disappointing portions of my labor, all the time thinking about myself instead of God and the work that lay for me to do in the days to come. 
Nobody, I said, but old Rogers understands me. Nobody would care, as far as my teaching goes, if another man took my place from next Sunday forward. And for Miss Oldcastle, her playing the Agnus Dei on Saturday afternoon, even if she intended that I should hear it, could only indicate at most that she knew how she had behaved to me in the morning, and thought she had gone too far and been unkind, or perhaps was afraid lest she should be accountable for any failure I might make in my Sunday duties, and therefore felt bound to do something to restore my equanimity. Choosing, though without consciously intending to do so, the dreariest path to be found, I wandered up the side of the slow black river, with the sentinel pollards looking at themselves in its gloomy mirror, just as I was looking at myself in the mirror of my circumstances. They leaned in all directions, irregular as the headstones of an ancient churchyard. In the summer they looked like explosions of green leaves at the best. Now they looked like the burned-out cases of the summer's fireworks. How different, too, was the river from the time when a whole fleet of shining white lilies lay anchored among their own broad green leaves upon its clear waters, filled with sunlight in every pore, as they themselves would fill the pores of a million caverned sponge. But I could not even recall the past summer as beautiful. I seemed to care for nothing. The first miserable afternoon at Marshmallows looked now as if it had been the whole of my coming relation to the place seen through a reversed telescope, and here I was in it now. The walk along the side was tolerably dry, although the river was bank full, but when I came to the bridge I wanted to cross, a wooden one, I found that the approach to it had been partly undermined and carried away for here the river had overflowed its banks in one of the late storms, and all about the place was still very wet and swampy. I could therefore get no farther in my gloomy walk, and so turned back upon my steps. Scarcely had I done so when I saw a man coming hastily towards me from far upon the straight line of the river walk. I could not mistake him at any distance. It was old Rogers. I felt both ashamed and comforted when I recognized him. Well, old Rogers, I said, as soon as he came within hail, trying to speak cheerfully, you cannot get much farther this way without waiting a bit at least. I don't want to go no farther now, sir. I came to find you. Nothing amiss, I hope. Nothing as I knows on, sir. I only wanted to have a little chat with you. I told Master I wanted to leave for an hour or so. He always lets me do just as I like. But how did you know where to find me? I saw you come this way. You passed me right on the bridge and didn't see me, sir. So I says I to myself, Oh, Rogers, something's amiss with Parson today. He never went by me like that afore. This won't do. You just go and see. So I went home and told Master, and here I be, sir, and I hope you're no ways offended with the liberty of me. Did I really pass you on the bridge, I said, unable to understand it? That you did, sir. I knowed Parson must be a goodish bit in his own innards afore he would do that. 
I needn't tell you I did see you, old Rogers. I could tell you that, sir. I hope there's nothing gone main wrong, sir. Miss is well, sir, I hope. Quite well, I thank you. No, my dear fellow, nothing has gone main wrong, as you say. Some of my running tackle got jammed a bit. That's all. I'm a little out of spirits, I believe. Well, sir, don't you be afeard I'm going to be troublesome. Don't think I want to get aboard your ship, except you fling me a rope. There's a many things you mun had to think about that an ignorant man like me couldn't take up if you was to let him drop. And being a gentleman, I do believe, makes the matter worse betuxed us. And there's many a thing that no man can go talking about to anyone, only the Lord himself. Still, you can't help us poor folks seeing when there's some amiss. And we can't help having our own thoughts any more than the sailor's jackdaw that couldn't speak. And sometimes we may be nearer the mark than you would suppose, for God has made us all of one blood, you know. What are you driving at, old Rogers? I said with a smile, which was none the less true that I suspected he had read some of the worst trouble of my heart. For why should I mind an honorable man like him knowing what oppressed me, though, as things went, I certainly should not, as he said, choose to tell it to any but one. I don't want to say what I was driving at, if it was anything but this, that I want to put the clumsy hand of a rough old tar with a heart as soft as the pitch that makes his hand hard to trim your sails a bit, sir, and help you to lie a point closer to the wind. You're not just close-hauled, sir. Say on, old Rogers, I understand you, and I will listen with all my heart, for you have a good right to speak. And old Rogers spoke thus. Once upon a time I made a voyage in a merchant bark. We were becalmed in the South Seas, and weary work it were, a doing of nothing from day to day. But when the water began to come up thick from the bottom of the water cask, it was wearier a deal. Then a thick fog came on, as white as snow almost, and we couldn't see more than a few yards ahead or on any side of us. But the fog didn't keep the heat off. It only made it worse, and the water was fast going done. The short allowances grew shorter and shorter, and the men, some of them, were half mad with thirst and began to look bad at one another. I kept up my heart by looking ahead inside me. For days and days the fog hung about us as if the air had been made of flocks of wool. The captain took to his berth, and several other crew to their hammocks, for it was just as hot on deck as anywhere else. The mate lay on a spare sail on the quarter deck, groaning. I had a strong suspicion that the schooner was drifting and hove the lead again and again, but could find no bottom. Some of the men got hold of the spirits, and that didn't quench their thirst. It drove them clean mad. I had to knock one of them down myself with a capstan bar, for he ran at the mate with his knife. At last I began to lose all hope, and still I was sure the schooner was slowly drifting. My head was like to burst, and my tongue was like a lump of holy stone in my mouth. Well, 
One morning, I had just, as I thought, lain down on the deck to breathe my last, hoping I should die before I went quite mad with thirst, when all at once the fog lifted like the foot of a sail. I sprung to my feet. There was the blue sky overhead, but the terrible burning sun was there. A moment more, and a light air blew on my cheek, and turning my face to it as if it had been the very breath of God, there was an island within half a mile, and I saw the shine of water on the face of a rock on the shore. I cried out, land on the weather quarter, water in sight. In a moment more, a boat was lowered, and in a few minutes the boat's crew, of which I was one, were lying, clothes and all, in a little stream that came down from the hills above. There, Mr. Walton, that's what I wanted to say to you. This is as near the story of my old friend as my limited knowledge of sea affairs allows me to report it. I understand you quite, old Rogers, and I thank you heartily, I said. No doubt, resumed he, King Solomon was quite right, as he always was, I suppose, in what he said, for his wisdom would have laid mostly in the tongue right, I say, when he said, Boast not thyself of tomorrow, for thou knowest not what a day may bring forth. But I can't help thinking there's another side to it. I think it would be as good advice to a man on the other tack, whose boasting lay far to windward, and he close on a lee shore with breakers, it wouldn't be amiss to say to him, Don't strike your colors to the morrow for thou knowest not what a day may bring forth. There's just as many good days as bad ones, as much fair weather as foul in the days to come. And if a man keeps up heart, he's all the better for that, and none the worse when the evil day does come. But, God forgive me, I'm talking like a heathen, as if there was any chance about what the days would bring forth. No, my lad, said the old sailor, assuming the dignity of his superior years under the inspiration of the truth. Boast and trust and hope in God, for thou shalt yet praise him who is the health of thy countenance and thy God. I could but hold out my hand. I had nothing to say, for he had spoken to me as an angel of God. The old man was silent for some moments. His emotion needed time to still itself again. Nor did he return to the subject. He held out his hand once more, saying, Good day, sir. I must go back to my work. I will go back with you, I returned. And so we walked back side by side to the village, but not a word did we speak, the one to the other, till we shook hands and parted upon the bridge where we had first met. Old Rogers went to his work, and I lingered upon the bridge. I leaned upon the low parapet, and looked up the stream, as far as the mist creeping about the banks, and hovering in thinnest veils over the surface of the water would permit. Then I turned and looked down the river, crawling on to the sweep it made out of sight, just where Mr. Brownrigg's farm began to come down to its banks. Then I looked to the left, and there stood my old church, 
as quiet in the dreary day, though not so bright as in the sunshine. Even the graves themselves must look yet more solemn sad in a wintry day like this than they look when the sunlight that enfolds them proclaims that God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. One of the great battles that we had to fight in this world, for twenty great battles had to be fought all at once and in one, is the battle with appearances. I turned me to the right, and there once more I saw, as on that first afternoon, the weathercock that watched the winds over the stables at Old Castle Hall. It had caught just one glimpse of the sun through some rent in the vapors and flung it across to me ere it vanished again amid the general dinginess of the hour. End of chapter 24